Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one off the back table. The passage for this morning is found in your bulletin insert. In some ways, the bulletin insert might be easier uh, to follow because we're going to be jumping uh, verses as we piece together this account. For those of you who are visiting, we've had We've been in a series, we've had a couple weeks off from that series, uh, but it's been a series that has been designed, that has, at least my hope and prayer, has been that it would help us grow in grace as we've been examining all these respectable sins that we all struggle with in our lives to some degree. We've called it the pilgrim's life, or more specifically, uh, the pilgrim's progress? What does it look like to grow in holiness? Well, today we jump back into that study for just one week, actually, as we turn our attention next week and then the week after to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'll still be behind this pulpit, but we're going to uh, prepare our hearts for, uh, for Holy Week as, as we turn to passages um, that pertain to that account of Jesus' life, but for today, this is a great segue, because uh, as you'll see, the narrative that we're going to read is right before the events that we're going to be talking about for the next couple weeks. It's right before those events, but it also falls in line with the kind of thing that we have been talking about before, and that is a respectable sin. We're going to talk today about the sin of pride. The sin of pride. Now, pride is a huge subject. It's something that we can't possibly talk about in one sermon or even in a series of sermons. It's a subject that we could come at from a number of different angles. We, as Reformed Presbyterians in this room, often struggle with the pride of correct doctrine, don't we? We get all wound up. We get all bent around the axle about this doctrine or that doctrine. And we have a tendency, not that correct doctrine is not good, but we have a tendency to let that knowledge, as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 8, to let that knowledge puff us up. But we're not going to talk about that today specifically. There's also moral self-righteousness that we all struggle with to some degree. This was, of course, on full display by the Pharisees in Jesus' day who prayed such things as, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I know that as I think about my own life in a society such as ours, in a broken world such as ours, boy, it's easy to slip into the pride of moral self-righteousness. Well, today we turn to a related pride to that issue of moral self-righteousness. We might call it the pride of perseverance or spiritual pride. It's the confidence that, that we have what it takes. That God will be pleased with us. This is in part, I think, what the Apostle Peter illustrates for us this morning 
in Mark chapter 14. Mark is one of the accounts of the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. And here in Mark's account of this story, this reality, Jesus is near death. He has just celebrated the Passover in the upper room with his disciples. And that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And so I encourage you uh, to look there with me, Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And then as you can see in your bulletin, we're going to be jumping down through the chapter of Mark 14. Listen as I read. And when they had sung a hymn, that is Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jumping down to verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And then 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, that is the Roman soldiers and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And then finally down to verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. I'll never do that. How many times have you said those words? I certainly have said those words plenty of times. Oh, I'll never do that. I remember as a young single guy and then as a newly married man looking at some of these parents and the way that they parented their kids and the way that their kids acted towards their parents at time. And I, I remember declaring in my mind, oh, I will never do that. My kids 
will be different. My authority will be different. Well, let me tell you, those of you who are single or newly married without kids, you will do that. In fact, you will do that, and you'll probably do worse than that. But at the very least, you will do what you thought you could never do. But how easy it is for us to think highly of ourselves. We just don't believe at times that we're capable of such things. Certainly this is true in our physical life, in the life of parenting. But it's often true in our spiritual lives as well. Friends, we just too often aren't realistic about the condition, the state, the battle, the war, the ongoing war in our hearts. I think our passage this morning speaks to this. It speaks to that tendency that we all feel to be spiritually prideful. To feel spiritually accomplished. And we see this through the life of Peter. We see this through the life of Jesus. As we walk through this passage, there are two exhortations that I want us to think about. Two exhortations that guide us this morning. One from the life of Peter. One from the life of Jesus. And the first one is this. People of God, don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Don't overestimate your spiritual strength. See, I probably don't have to tell you that fighting your sin, that following Jesus, that the life of a pilgrim that we have been talking about for the last several weeks is hard. It is hard to do in a broken world with natures that are naturally bent away from their Creator and Redeemer. Don't overestimate your spiritual strength. I can't help but think of my mother's words ringing in the back of my head. Nathan, you're too big for your britches. And in a sense, God's Word reminds us of that this morning. Don't be too big for your britches. Have a realistic view of your limitations. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Humble yourselves. It's interesting in this account of Mark how he intertwined, you know, as we jumped all around, he intertwines the stories of Mark and of Jesus. And he almost sets the two up against one another. Each as examples. When you think about it, it's, it's appropriate that the writer does this. They each are about to be on trial. Jesus formally will be on trial. Peter informally is going to be on trial. They are both are about to be questioned. They both are about to respond to that questioning accordingly. And they both will be charged. How are they going to respond? Well, today we look at Peter. Next week we'll look at Jesus. But as we focus on Peter, you've got to love Peter. If you've read through the Gospels, if you're familiar with this 
follower of Jesus, this disciple of Christ. Peter has been close to the Lord for years now. He's been one of Jesus' brashest, most vocal followers, and, and that's not always been a good thing. That's not always been a positive thing. Those of you who remember the narrative of Jesus might remember that Mark was, that earlier in Mark, that Peter was the lone disciple who spoke up and confessed that Jesus, you are the Christ. But then right after that, he is soundly rebuked because he contradicts Jesus in Jesus' prediction of his own death. He just speaks, Peter does. John MacArthur wrote a great little book on the twelve disciples, and in his chapter on Peter, he entitles that chapter, Peter, the Apostle with the Foot-Shaped Mouth. (laughs) That's a great description of Peter and the kinds of things that he said, the kind of interactions he had. Foot often in his mouth. But we've got to give him credit for trying. After all, Peter, in this account, in this text that we read just a minute ago, he is the only disciple that doesn't completely abandon Jesus. When Jesus and his followers start feeling the heat and Jesus is arrested, they all scatter and Peter at least lingers, stays semi-close by. And yet these scenes that we we read about in Mark chapter 14, the scenes of, of Peter are, are not positive. It's a scene of failure. We might say Peter, in his brashness, in his bold statement, overestimated his spiritual strength. So Jesus proclaims that his disciples will ditch him once his arrest begins and The trial commences, but just like in chapter 8, Peter doesn't believe it. Back in chapter 8, it was was Jesus' destiny that Peter questioned here. It's his own destiny, and he doesn't just deny it. He almost disdains it. He points the finger at the other disciples and their weaknesses. They'll ditch you for sure, Lord, but not me. Not only will I not ditch you, but I will go to the death with you. But everything changes. Everything changes and we find Peter slinking around the courtyard close enough to observe what's happening to Jesus when he's suddenly recognized. He's suddenly confronted. Suddenly those bold words, that bold statement is forgotten. It's only a couple of hours old and it just goes out the window and Peter suddenly claims to have no idea who Jesus is and after unsuccessfully slipping into the shadows, he finally invokes a curse upon himself when he is confronted. Some commentators think that the curse on himself is just to add Gravity to his denial. Others think he is cursing Jesus. Either way, he won't even mention Jesus' name. How easily fear for his own personal safety has trumped the supposed steadfast allegiance that he claimed. And all of this is happening while Jesus is being 
tempted, excuse me, beaten and, and spit upon. We ask ourselves, or we may think to ourselves, surely we would have done better. Surely we wouldn't have treated the Lord Jesus as Peter did. We think we would have done better than the man who had walked with Jesus for years, who had been an eyewitness to his majesty. The Apostle Paul spoke to the Corinthian church, and he spoke to them about learning from the mistakes of the Old Testament people of God. And he concludes in the end of chapter 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. That's what Peter shows us this morning. Don't don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Now as we look at Peter, as we think about that point, I'm guessing that that hits us in one of maybe two different ways. For those of you who are visiting this morning, maybe you aren't a Christian here this morning. If that's the case, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're exploring who this Jesus is. And you may be thinking, why do Christians always talk about this kind of stuff? Why do we always need to talk about what we can't do? You Christians are always, especially you Reformed Presbyterians, you're always talking about sin. Why can't you be uplifting? Why can't you be optimistic? Why can't you talk about the power and the potential of the human race? Well, I think the first thing I'd say to that is, Your experience, my experience, leads you somewhere else. Brokenness is all around you. And if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with your heart, brokenness is in your heart. You've witnessed it in your families. You certainly witnessed it on the news. You've seen it in your communities. And yes, you'll see it here in the church. We don't sit here as saints with halos around our heads. We sit here as broken sinners. This is a hospital of grace. But I also would say that this is where the Bible leads us. And we hold that the Bible speaks truth. And that the God who authored these words knows us better than we know ourselves as I prayed earlier. And so this is true. That as the Bible warns us to take heed of ourselves, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, it's probably because we have a tendency to do that. But secondly, what we need to see this morning, what we all need to be reminded of this morning, myself included, is that we need to be brought low in order that God might replace it with something better. You who are Reformed Presbyterian Christians in this room are saying, well, we know this. We believe in that great doctrine, total depravity. We believe in our ability, our inability to come to God on our own. 
And of course, I say amen to that. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but our passage this morning is talking about not the grace in coming to the Lord Jesus, but the grace it takes to walk with the Lord Jesus, to follow the Lord Jesus. And this, I contend, is hard for us to digest. It's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to live. How easily we identify with Peter's zeal to follow the Lord. Yes, I'm going to follow you, Lord. And we slip into performance mode. Going back to two weeks ago where we add to the Gospel, Jesus, plus look what I've done, Lord. And the Bible reminds us, take heed lest we fall. Don't overestimate your weakness. Be realistic. Be prepared. Cast yourselves on the strength that He provides. Of course, the opposite of spiritual pride is spiritual humility. But how do we get to that point of spiritual humility? Well, that brings us to the second exhortation and what we learn from Matthew 14 and specifically from Jesus and from His words to His disciples here in this context. The second truth for us this morning is this. Don't underestimate God's extravagant grace. See, don't overestimate your spiritual strength, but don't underestimate God's extravagant grace. Yes, mostly Mark chapter 14 is a story of bleak failure. But God's grace is there. God's grace is there, and it shows itself strong in two particular areas. First, God's grace to comfort, and God's grace to to transform. Let's first look at God's grace to comfort in this account of Peter and Jesus. See, God's grace is immediately seen in this context and the fact that He knows our weakness. Jesus knows your weakness. Jesus knew of the disciples' pending desertion. He knew of his close friend Peter's upcoming denial. He knew it because he predicted it. He said it was going to take place. And Psalm 103 declares that great promise of God as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So the first way in this path to humility of not underestimating God's grace is remembering that God brings comfort to the promise of His knowledge of you, His knowledge of your weakness. We know our children's weakness. We know their limitations. And yet, we bear with them. How much more does the Lord, the One who knit us all together, know us? How much more does Jesus of Nazareth, the One who walked, in skin like this, who experienced all that we experience, how much more does He know us? That great passage in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. 
See, Jesus knows us, and that's the first gracious word of comfort. That's the first gift of extravagant grace. But it goes on. You'll notice that sandwiched between this story, maybe you didn't notice this, I'll draw your attention to it, sandwiched in this story is the Garden of Gethsemane. And much could be said about that account of the Garden. But I think in putting the story of Jesus praying in the Garden, the Holy Spirit points us to the source of strength. The source of our strength. The source of Jesus' strength in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of the failure of our spiritual strength. And and what is that? Well, what happened in the garden? See, the parallels of this ordeal between Jesus and Peter, they sharply divide. Peter was in the garden for a time with Jesus, and what did Peter do? Peter was in the garden and he slept. And Peter failed. Jesus was in the garden, and he prayed. He prayed and he triumphed. The point is that in the hour that he needed it most, Peter failed to grab a hold of one of the resources that God had given him to stand firm. Cry out to the one who promises spiritual strength, to the one who knows your frame, who remembers that you are dust. Again, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and he says the same truth. There in 2 Corinthians, in that letter, he writes about a thorn that was given to him to keep him from being conceited. Many of you remember that thorn in the flesh. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, but He, that is the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, through prayer, Paul received not only answer that he was looking for, but he received the grace and the power and the strength to press on with the thorn. Don't underestimate God's grace to sustain you through prayer, through simply crying out to Him in humility. Well, there's one final word of comfort that God in His grace shows us here. We've talked about weakness, the fact that He knows us. We've talked about prayer. But one final word of comfort is in verse 28. Jesus had prophesied that the failure He prophesied about the failure of his closest followers, and yet he follows it up with this, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, Jesus promises restoration. In a sense, we could say it brings us back to that first word of comfort. Not only does Jesus know our weakness, he knows our weakness And He doesn't give up on us. He still loves us. He still presses forward with us. In the same breath that He spoke of the desertion of those closest to Him, He proclaims that after it's all over, after they have fled with tails tucked between their legs, after they have denied Him to His face, He will be waiting for them 
He will be waiting for them in Galilee. In the very place that he called them. That's grace. Don't underestimate it. Well, those are the three words of comfort, but I said it's also God's grace to transform us, and that's what we'll end with this morning. Simply put, God is doing something here. Jesus is doing something with His disciples here. He is doing something with Peter. And He's doing something with you and your failures and your spiritual pride and your lack of spiritual strength. Many of you know as well as I do that the Bible is littered with failures. Noah's drunkenness. Father Abraham's bold-faced lies. David's adultery and murder. All failures. All failures that God, in His infinite wisdom, has planned for His sovereign purposes. You see, in our own lives, in our own lives, there will be days of testing. You know that. You've experienced it. But let me remind you that God is using it. That God is not abandoning you. But God is using it. See, even as Jesus predicts the scattering of His followers, He does so by quoting Zechariah 13. The context of which God is refining a new people. He's creating a new people for Himself. See, Peter's failure was part of God's refinement. It was part of God's ultimate purpose of how He wanted to use Peter, and this is one of those pieces of this story that we can't miss. Peter, one of the greatest failures in the life of Jesus, becomes one of the greatest triumphs, one of the greatest trophies of God's grace. And you ask, well, how is he a trophy? Why is he a trophy? Well, we could look at the kind of witness that he becomes for the Lord Jesus, We see a bit of it in the book of Acts. We see him boldly proclaiming the gospel, being arrested, being imprisoned, being the kind of leader that Jesus indeed predicted him to be. We could go beyond the book of Acts. We could go to the tradition of church history, which says that Peter was faithful to the Lord Jesus to the point of death. He himself, even by tradition, saying that he died on a cross. But I want you to see something else here. I want you to see something else about the life of Peter in the book of Mark. Because this very account that we've read this morning, the account of this story is Peter's. It's Peter's account. 
Yes, it, it bears the name of, of John Mark, and Mark did pen these words, but Mark wasn't an eyewitness. See, the eyewitness was Peter. And Peter spoke these words to Mark, and not only does church history tell us this, but you'll notice that throughout this book of Mark, Peter pops up all over the place. And when he does, it's not for the purpose of praising Peter. Never. It's always to expose the weakness of Peter. Even in the account of Peter in the courtyard. Who was there in the courtyard besides Peter and Jesus? Besides Peter and Jesus. See, all the others were long gone. Peter could report on his own terrible failure because he had learned humility. What had happened to Peter? Well, God's grace had transformed him. Didn't make him perfect. Doesn't make us perfect. But the grace that was shown him by his Lord Jesus in the midst of such a disastrous failure, can you imagine those closest to you not supporting you and denying you in such a way the grace that Jesus showed him in the face, in the wake of such a failure, steeled him for a life of service to God. We might ask, how did this happen? I mean, Judas, another close follower of Jesus, betrayed him, and Judas ended up spiraling out of control and committing suicide. Peter betrays Jesus, and he is changed. What is the difference? Well, Peter was broken. Peter ran to his Savior. The difference was repentance. Mark tells us that after the rooster crowed, Peter broke down and wept. And Luke paints the picture even more vividly, recording that Jesus and Peter's eyes met. And you can imagine the, the shame that Peter felt. Remember, Jesus had prayed for Peter specifically. Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Friends, the Gospel declares to you, the Scriptures declare to you this morning that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath, absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And so this morning, in your weakness, mindful of that weakness, of your lack of strength to come alongside Jesus, to walk behind Jesus, to stay with Jesus, as one preacher put it, plunge your failures into God's grace. That's the message for us. That's the good news that we proclaim Paul continues in that passage that I read earlier what he wrote to the Corinthian church where he proclaims that God's grace is sufficient and he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm content for the sake of Christ then with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, 
and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this, this is the paradox of the Christian life. That in coming to the end of ourselves, in declaring our spiritual bankruptcy, not just one time, but over and over and over again, we become rich because of another. Because of the one who failed us not. You see, in following Jesus, friends, you may say, I will never do that. You may be tempted there, but chances are you will. So the call to us this morning is to be realistic about our weaknesses, to not overestimate our own spiritual strength, to live with humility, yes, to flee to the source of strength that God provides through prayer, yes, but ultimately don't end up with your own efforts or the lack thereof. Ultimately, cast your lack of resolve, cast yourself, and cast all of those failures on the immeasurable well of God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ. May that grace, may that extravagant grace motivate us in this life, in this pilgrimage of following Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such wonderful promises to us, your people, this morning. And I pray that as we go from this place that Your Spirit would continue to do His work in us, showing us those places of arrogance and spiritual pride and replacing them with humility. For Lord, You give grace to those who are humble. Humble before You. And we certainly acknowledge that we need it this day. We need it that we might be in all of our failures, in all the mess that we are, that we might be trophies of grace. That in our weakness, your strength might be seen. Your glory might be declared to a watching world. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.